Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 270 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm going to the dentist this week. So I phoned my dentist to book the appointment probably like four months ago or however long it takes to get an NHS dentist appointment now. And I made my appointment. A year and a half. A year and a half. Well, I was supposed to go last year, but stuff conspired against me. So now we here we are 12 months later, trying again. And I booked my appointment and I hung up the phone and I thought, oh, do you know what? I should have just booked one for Gary as well. So I phoned back and I said, can I make an appointment for my husband? And she said, of course. And she gave me an appointment for Gary. And I am really annoyed. Why do you think I'm annoyed? What time is Gary's appointment? Before your appointment? No. His appointment is at 2.30. 2.30. The dream. The dream. I want an appointment at 2.30. He is so delighted. At least, you know, you'll be fresh from brushing your teeth. Oh, mine's only half an hour before. It's just annoying that he gets 2.30 and I get 2. Why is 2.30 a dream instead of 2? 2. It's a joke. 2.30. What time should you go to the dentist? 2.30. Oh, I see. Sorry. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Someone didn't have a big book of dad jokes in her pocket when she was a small child, did she? certainly did not, no. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and Brexit is really helping me to get my steps in. Tell us more. So I've just been on holiday to Copenhagen, although I have actually been on several European like short trips in the last year, one of which with you, Mickey, so you confirm what I'm about to say is true. Uh Uh-huh. And when you fly back, they put you from the absolute furthest possible gate every single time if you're flying to the UK now. And yesterday at Copenhagen Airport, from where we were, from like the main hall to our gate, three and a half thousand steps. That's nearly two miles oh, we had to walk. Well, a sh- there wasn't a travelator. There was none. It was like we were just in the depths. We didn't get like an air bridge. We just had to walk out onto the runway and get out, on the plane. Start walking. Yeah. And I am pretty sure that is to do with they're just like, fuck them English people. Make them walk the furthest possible. It said four to six minute walk and it took twenty five minutes to get there. Four. To the game. That's harsher than Eurovision. Yeah. That's like <laughs> real hatred. It is real hatred. Uh, I mean they've kind of got a point though, haven't they? It feels uh yeah. feels wrong to argue with it. I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday my daughter said fuck three times, threw sand in my face, and deliberately swallowed her own hairband as a grand finale. How was your weekend? <laughs> what the fuck, Jen? Where the fuck has she picked up this kind of language? Not from me, that's for sure. <laughs> it, that almost sounds like a weird spell. Say fuck three times, throw sand <laughs> at someone, and then swallow <laughs> hairband. She's a witch. I hope so. <laughs> Have you got mouth's feet now or something like that not yet time will tell though give it time time will give tell. it time she's just waiting for the other ingredients she didn't do it all at in. the same time it's uh this is just a just a handful of things that happened yesterday i once when i was little and i must have only been about six or seven but me and my neighbor who was also six or seven taught her little cousin who was two to say the phrase i want a fucking baby sham and I don't know why, but we found it very, very funny. And we got into so much trouble. I, I still regret nothing. Oh, <laughs> you're never spending time with Lyra. Uh, She'll be teaching me swear words, Jed. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. Coming up, I chat to poet Maggie Smith about her beautiful memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. There's too many beautifuls in that sentence. Why didn't I notice? Uh, mumming, wifing and the division of labour. 
I chat to Gemma Whelan about the tower, Upstart Crow, and a lot more besides. In Journey Off the Blocks, we're chatting US Open and more, and in Rated or Dated, get your strategically placed Chelsea Bonds out for the lads. We're watching 2003's Calendar Girls. Throws sand in Jen's face. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. Eats own hair band. But first, a tissue, a tissue. Our schools fall down. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Houston. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we ask Burning Man 2023 or Glasto 97. Were you at Glasto 97, Mick? I've never been to Glastonbury. It just seems too okay. big for me to deal with, Hannah. But you've been to, a, not that one, but a very muddy Glastonbury, right? Glastonbury 97 is allegedly the muddiest. I think probably because it was pre the war. So there were loads and loads more people there churning All up. All right, the... Trump. Fucking hell. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> build that wall. Anyway, uh, I was at Glastonbury 2005, which is the one that had the most rain that's ever had. And the site flooded. One of the stages got struck by lightning. And yeah, I just soldiered on through it because that's in my nature, Mick. It's a classic British festival, though, isn't it? I've seen a naked man sliding down a hill of mud at Bestival. And I thought, oh, it could be an axe. It could just be part of him getting back to his tent. You never know. But you, we're getting these missives from Burning Man. People going, guys, I made it out alive. And you're like, it's just some mud, dude. And you have yeah. to walk for a bit. All the tech bros not having a nice time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they are super wealthy types, mostly, of Burning Man, aren't they? The ones that, yeah, normally get other people to do this stuff for them. I'd imagine it's a tiny bit like, that festival that was that did, that sort of happened but didn't happen, the one where they all pay for first class food and then oh, got like a burger in a plastic uh, case. You know, what, what was, was it that called? called? That documentary was incredible. Fire was it? The fire festival. The fire festival. Yeah. yeah. Oh wowzers! I said this is worse, Hannah. I don't think you understand how bad it is when you're used to having every luxury known to man. Well, there's the bit that we don't understand. That. And suddenly, you've got to walk for six miles. Six in the whole mud. miles. That's insane. Anyway, talking of falling apart, that. there are many institutions that appear to be falling apart in this country, but education has made it very literal, as dozens of schools aren't reopening for the new academic year because of potential or actual collapse. Jesus Amid a mounting political and educational crisis over schools built from the 1950s to the 1990s using reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, that's R-A-A-C, or are we calling it rack? Should we call it rack? I'm going to call it rack. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I often use in my day-to-day uh, conversations, Mick, but maybe now I will, yeah. Welcome to September 2023, Hannah. Uh, anyway, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said it was still not known how many schools might be affected and how many might need to close because engineers are inspecting more sites. Keegan had more to say, albeit with about as much integrity as the buildings in question, telling ITV's Daniel Hewitt that, well, it's not up to the government to make sure school buildings don't collapse on kids. That is down to local authorities. And who is it who's supposed to take notice when the local authorities flag that they're worried about school buildings, as they claim to have been doing since 2018? What's that, Gillian? The dog at your homework? OK, huh? another question. Who is responsible for funding, rather than underfunding local authorities, 
to ensure they have enough cash to look after buildings such as schools and hospitals. Not sure where you're off to, Gillian. That bell is for me, not for you. Sit down. I mean, Tory Minister Shirk's responsibility for Tory shit show, no surprises here. But all of this could have been averted years ago. Back in 2010, a £56 billion plan was in gear to replace every single rack school in the UK. But then Education Secretary and sentient stale ham sandwich, Michael yeah. Gove, scrapped it. What did he replace it with? Yeah. <laughs> Sweet fuck all. And now here we are with a critical risk to children's lives coming from crumbling concrete panels. Something that current PM Rishi Sunak knew about when he was Chancellor. If you're wondering what our esteemed leader... God, I actually don't even think I can say that with a huge amount of sarcasm. If you're wondering what the country's leader has to say about this current critical risk to children's lives, he first and foremost wants you to know it is completely and utterly wrong, that's a direct quote, to blame him for any of it. Great key message from the prime pillock there. If only the government could be a bit more Jamie Oliver about our children's health, that would be pucker. Oliver is once again in the news as he once again calls for free school meals to be extended across England. So state-funded primary schools in London have just rolled them out to all pupils, which was a Sadiq Khan initiative. And a recent survey for the School Food Review Group suggests that the majority of both Conservative and Labour voters are in favour of extending free school meals to more children. Turns out people want kids to get fed, Hannah. Who knew? Well, yeah. The, the government says no, <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. Because seriously, one of the world's richest countries feeding children and making sure they don't get hit by crumbling concrete, we're dreaming. Yeah, I saw a thing this morning, because we recorded this on Tuesday, I saw a thing this morning where, and I can't remember her name because that's the impact she's had on my life so far. She must be the education. Gillian the, Keegan? Yeah. Is this her wanting to be congratulated? Yeah. I've worked really hard. When the fuck do I get congratulated and get told that I'm doing a great job? I, I don't know. Perhaps when you do a great job, Gillian. So never. Yeah. I mean, if they want to just work for tips, that's fine. We can arrange <laughs> that. Dance for me, Keegan. Tosses <laughs> buttons and ribbons. Mickey, I want to talk about parental alienation. I've come <laughs> to the right place, eh? Uh, yep. May as well be an alien, one of them, to be honest with you. (laughs) Well, actually, I'm talking about parental alienation, the legal term, and you'd be forgiven for not knowing what that means, because in truth, it's not very clearly defined, which is why it's being abused by certain men. Mm. That's according to a new England-wide study by the University of Manchester, which was revealed on Monday by BBC News in a very good, very long, very rage-inducing piece which I can't possibly do justice to here, but I will put a link in the show notes. Here's the bit that we all need to know, though, and that is that dozens of children have been forced to have contact with fathers accused of abuse who used the disputed and controversial concept of parental alienation. That enabled them to claim the mothers had turned the child against them, something Dr Elizabeth Dalgano, who led the research, has called a national scandal. And family law barrister Lucy Reed Casey told the BBC, quote, it's quite often used by fathers to mean pretty much anything that is in opposition to their demand for a certain amount of contact. Did somebody say loophole? <laughs> yeah. And while allowing abusers 
in one case, a man who had raped a child, access to their children is obviously shocking enough. The study also found the catastrophic effects such legal struggles had on the health of these children's mothers, which went up to and included death. Now, all is not lost. The Family Justice Council has issued new draft guidance for consultation on how to deal with allegations of alienating behaviour. But there are calls for more to be done. In fact, the United Nations Special Rapporteur, on violence against women and girls had previously called for the use of parental alienation to be prohibited globally. And that's it. If abusers see any kind of in, they're going to use it. Well, why haven't we learned that? Why hasn't Safeguarding learned that? But it seems, and like I say, I can't do justice to that piece, and I also refuse to just basically crib it here because that's not fair. It's somebody else's reporting. The general thrust of that piece appears to be that even in cases where... People are saying to judges, the system, do you know what I mean? Look at this. He's He's got a conviction for domestic abuse. Sometimes it's to do with abusing people during the relationship or before there's an instance where a woman was involved with a man. She didn't know he had a previous conviction. Anecdotal information is sort of being used to basically ignore that with, well, he seems like a nice guy. Men should see their kids. Oh, it's the same as it ever was. It's the same whenever a man murders his wife, isn't it? Yeah. Or his girlfriend or his ex-wife or his ex-partner. It's this yeah. whole like, oh, just seemed like a normal bloke next door. No, well, she must have done something. And it's it's also being used and has been used in the justice system, justice, ha, huh, uh, system forever. But this is, this is horrific. Again, we're talking about kids. Like, it's horrible when it's women. It's appalling. But kids were supposed to protect kids. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure in lots of divorces, things do get really nasty. I'm sure there are women that, you know, possibly say stuff, not not even to their children, but maybe just in front of their children to somebody else. Do you know what I mean? That maybe with the benefit of a bit of time and hindsight, they perhaps wish they hadn't said. But if what they're saying is he's an abuser and, I, you know, I don't think he should have access to you. Take it seriously, particularly if this abuse is on record. Absolutely, Hannah. Anyway, roll up, roll up and witness a woman really running out of ideas of how to introduce the good news section. (laughs) But, you know, it's good news for the environment, which is always welcome, but not least in a week when Australian ski resorts are already closing for a lack of snow. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, hooray for the news that burning coal and gas in order to generate electricity fell to record lows in the EU this year. That's according to analysts at Ember, which is an energy think tank. Why? Well, it's apparently a combination of falling demand and availability of renewables, which led to a 17% fall in fossil fuel generation for the first six months of the year. And 17 is a fucking huge figure here. And indeed, I'm going to use it again. A whopping 17 out of 22 EU countries generated record shares of power from clean sources, with Greece and Denmark surpassing 50% for the first time. And in fact, things have got a bit wild in Denmark, which, along with Portugal, reached 75%. I'm excited to hear how things have gone wild in Denmark, but also the EU sounds great, Hannah. Is that ah. Have we considered being part of it at all? I don't know. What do you reckon? Do you think it'll catch on? 
no, I would like to have uh, autonomy of my own passport shade and ability <laughs> to ruin the environment. But having just been in Denmark, I can say that the hotel that we stayed in had a massive sign up on the reception that said, if you decline housekeeping, you can have. And for every day that you declined housekeeping there, you either got a hundred Danish kroner to spend in their bar. You got a voucher Amazing. for a hundred, which is about, I mean, the price of beer in Denmark is about a pint and a half. Nonetheless, that's not to be Still? sniffed at. You got a half price bike rental at the shop next door. Or you got, do you know the toiletries that are in the room? Yeah, yeah. You got bigger versions of the toiletries in the room, if you like them. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone that I went for the beer. <laughs> but I have never seen that offered as an incentive. I've seen people say you don't have to use it, it's good for the environment, but I've never seen a hotel offer a half-decent incentive for doing it. And I've never no, seen totally. it advertised so publicly. And I wonder if that isn't part of some sort of government-backed scheme where you can tax right off that, you know, for encouraging people. You'd think so. That sounds like a great scheme. Yeah. I mean, and also, because I'm a grown-up, I don't need someone to make my bed for me. Are you? Yeah, well, just about. But I don't need someone to make my bed for me, certainly. And I use the towel more than once at home, so I don't know why I wouldn't use the towel more than once. Yeah, you took your mum. Does she make your bed for you? (laughs) (laughs) I made her bed for her. Um, yeah, but I thought that was interesting. I mean, obviously, if you're the sort of person who likes to wipe your ass on your bed sheets, maybe it's not going to work for you. But on that bombshell, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we travel back in time. Or well, that is certainly how it must feel for the women of Afghanistan fighting for their rights amid gender apartheid, thanks to the Taliban. It's two years since the Taliban returned to power and day by day the walls close in on Afghan women. Like any abusive partner, the Taliban initially claimed it would be different this time. I've changed. Announcing in its first press conference that women would be very active in Afghan society. I mean, sceptical didn't quite cut it for a lot of people and their warnings are borne out and they are borne out fast. In just two years, the Taliban has reversed the advances in women's and girls' rights gained over two years previous decades and it has if anything doubled down on its persecution of women the women of afghanistan went from existence from being part of society from working from being part of every aspect of life as doctors judges nurses engineers women running offices to nothing says mahuba siraj a 74 year old journalist and women's rights activist Afghanistan is now the only country where it is illegal for female humans to study beyond secondary school age or to work in pretty much most professions. Women are also barred from parks, gyms and other public spaces and can only travel with a male guardian. Recent reports indicate that suicide and attempted suicide is on a steep rise for women and girls in the country. Behind the scenes, female activists have steadily been building support networks for marginalised women, creating grassroots organisations, documenting cases of gender-based violence and opening safe spaces for women in various parts of the country. And I cannot overemphasise the courage required to do all this, given the penalties when the Taliban regime responds. Mm. But fucking hell, up the women, absolutely up the women. 
So what can we, and at this point I'm using we to mean the UK, do? I mean, it is, uh, as you'd expect, a very tricky one. Afghan women and girls have repeatedly affirmed the importance of withholding formal recognition of the Taliban. So asking the Taliban to moderate its behaviour on women's rights and other issues in return for, say, funding or aid has to be distinct from formal recognition, which, like I said, is very tricky. What's clear is that women, Afghan and other women, need to have a seat at any tables talking about how to help Afghan women. And that's just not happening yet. It's not happening here and it's certainly not happening there. So what can we, and now I mean we as individuals, do? Well, we can keep talking about what's happening, keep shining that light, keep honouring these incredible women, the activists fighting for their rights despite all of the hurdles. And, as ever, kuching money helps. Reporting from the ground on what the Taliban is doing to women is really fucking hard, as I'm sure you can imagine. But the Canadian-based non-profit Zan Times funds women journalists in Afghanistan via donations and grants, basically. So check them out at zantimes.com and you'll not only see some incredible reporting, you'll also see a nice orange donate button. Give it a click. Yes, I have nothing to add except this face of horror. Hello and welcome to Standard Issue, Gemma Whelan. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we were just discussing, a friend of mine interviewed you the other day. He works for Waitrose. I haven't read it because I was worried that he and I were going to ask exactly all the same questions. Oh. And, <laughs> and uh, he would think that I had nicked Plagiarism, I plagiarism. It. Yeah. <laughs> I do reckon he would have gone in with The Tower Returns to ITV for a second series. Tahira Sharif got a BAFTA nomination. It was yeah. very, very well watched. Is that a surprise to you? Do you get a feeling when you're making something that something's going to be really popular or is your guess as good as anyone's? Yeah, my guess is always as good as anyone's. However, like reading the scripts, I thought it was something special. Obviously having Patrick Harbinson as the sort of the screen writing adaptation, you know, obviously they're based on Kate London's brilliant books. But I think the source material of Kate's was so good because she was an ex-Met homicide detective. So everything that she's written, you know, has happened in some capacity, you know, obviously names and dates and everything changed. First hand accounts really through fiction from her. And then Patrick's excellent, as I say, excellent adaptive hand to the the scripts. And so it was a really dense, exciting, character driven script that also really addressed a zeitgeist, I suppose, is sort of the, the, a current issue, which was not so much as the line of duty is, but sort of a, a real sort of gritty, down-to-earth corruption in the police force of, of obviously, unfortunately, it aired at the same time as Sarah Everard was going on and a certain other police officers were being called into question over their integrity. And the Tower One really sort of focused on integrity and protocol and the sort of racism and misogyny and sexism within the police force. So it really sort of addressed some large issues with finesse, I'd say. And now with Tower 2, it focuses a lot on women, women's stories, women being seen, women being listened to, domestic abuse, um, which, again, you know, has always been current. But post-pandemic, we all sort of, I was certainly alarmed when all that stuff came out about if you can't leave the house or if you need help or if someone is abusing you and you're trapped. You know, I, I, was, I hadn't even thought mm. about that, that 
area of life. There's, there must be so many people with trapped. So, so I think it, it's really current and it's just really clever. I really love the scripts and with the way Patrick weaves all of the storylines together and individuates the characters. I just, I just, I, I think I did think it was probably going to be pretty well received. We are currently filming series three, and typically with ITV anyway, you have to sort of wait until the, the series airs before you get recommissioned. Whereas we were recommissioned months ago, off the strength of them loving series two, even though it hadn't aired. So yeah, it, it feels like it's sort of gaining strength and interest, and it's really exciting to be part of it. My next question was going to be, we have sort of peaks and troughs of public opinion of the police in this country. And obviously, not all drama shows police to be heroes. Quite often it shows the opposite, but it's almost, it shows them as these huge villains. Whereas I suppose what the Tower is doing is showing it as the sort of stuff, I mean, racism is racism, but the sort of stuff that people might write off and go, oh, that's just, that's just Bob. That's just how he is. Yeah. Or the yeah. sort of sexism that people excuse on, on a small scale, which yeah. can have a huge difference. Yeah. Because I have been wondering, when is the public feeling? When is television writing going to start catching up with the fact that we don't feel the same about the police for a number of reasons mm. today, as we did, say, for example, five years ago? No, exactly. However, I do still like, just through my children, I suppose, that my son is obsessed with Nino cars, he calls them police cars, and he says he wants to be, he's one, one and a half, he wants to be a policeman, <laughs> as is t- typical. But also, I do try and teach my daughter, when we see policemen and women out on the streets, that I say, you know, if you're ever in trouble, that's the kind of person that you need to go to for help. So I do believe in them. I do have a, a belief, because the ones we've always met have always been very nice. <laughs> and I do believe in the police force, and I think we're very lucky in this country to have one that is not as corrupt as many other countries should be saying. And there are a lot of people, such as Kate London, and many of the um, supporting artists on the tower are ex-coppers and detectives. And they're just good people. And I think there is space to acknowledge that there are a lot of cops trying to do their best. It's tricky, isn't it? Because then you come across certain things you hear that are highly unsavoury. And Mm. uh, it's, it's tricky. Absolutely. You started off in comedy, you used to do stand-up mm-hmm. many moons ago. But you've really sort of trod a fine line. You do some comedy, you do some drama. Is that luck or judgment? Have you chosen to keep your hands in both areas? Yeah. I think at the time the Game of Thrones came along, I had been doing a lot of comedy. And I was really hungry to do some drama. But I was told it's quite tricky to cross over once you're known for comedy. I wasn't known for anything, but I had been doing a lot of comedy and you can't be seen for drama if you're just a bit part comedian. And then I just got lucky with work, you know, place and time with my casting for Game of Thrones. And that sort of opened up a world of drama possibilities to me. And so, yeah, I think I I now am very fortunate that I can tread between one and the other. Gentleman Jack is a good example of combining skills because Marion was very, very funny, but she was also very tragic and opinionated and dramatic and I I got so many wonderful scenes to play very deeply straight and with great sort of candor and feeling and then I'd look down the camera and do an eye roll it was just wonderful to play both so that really combined everything for me they were my absolute favorite moments of Gentleman Jacker I wasn't supposed to because Sally was like it's only ever surround that's meant to do that and then I started doing it 
um, Sally directed some of the first series and um, she says, I quite like that, actually. Yeah, keep that, keep that. So I was allowed to choicely, once per episode, give an offer to camera. And um, yeah, it was luck whether it would get through or not. <laughs> she was just so interesting, Marion, because she had a, a, an interesting mind and, you know, she just was so utterly and completely dominated by her sister yeah. and her sister's reputation that, yeah, I, 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 I really felt for Marion. I thought she was a really interesting character and she got to sort of alleviate it by the, by those just periodic, like you say, just epic eye rolls to camera. Yeah, just the lovely moments of levity that like Marion is, a, you know, a full and brilliant person too, but was just lived in the shadows of um, Anne Lister. Yeah, it was... It, it was so interesting to play that character to, to to know that she was a real woman and she lived in that very house we filmed in until she was 83 and she didn't marry because Anne did shit on her plans to mm. marry her suitor and yeah it was really nice to sort of play drama comedy and sort of real life within a within a fantastic you know tv series Sally's amazing so yeah to be honest it's been a, a full week since somebody's mentioned Sally Wainwright on the podcast so thank you for doing it because I think we could just talk about her constantly I could talk about her forever Joe you know, she's an amazing oil painter as well is she yeah she's a fantastic oil painter of portraits she's just endlessly gifted and really frank isn't she down yeah. to earth and clear yeah. The last time I interviewed her, she'd just been to collect a load of Maine Coon kittens. And she was basically, they were crawling all over her during the interview. And it just seemed like if anybody sort of is a representation of the mischief of a bunch of kittens, Sally Wainwright was it. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Now, I came to see you, I, my nephew and my brother, and actually some of my colleagues, when you were doing the stage version of Upstart Crow, we came on opening night. And we came out of that and went, oh, my God, that's going to absolutely kill. That is going to be amazing. And then, of course, two weeks, three weeks later, it was gone. What mm. was what was it like when you finally got to come back on stage, um, fulfil that promise that was hanging there for so long? Yeah, it was an extraordinary time. David and I, you know, I remember having a conversation with him two weeks before we closed, when Broadway closed, and we were like, oh, it's just a flu, it's not going to close, come on. And then, as, as I say, two weeks later, we were gone as well. And it was really sad and unfortunate and disappointing, but it was also, there was no FOMO, was there, at that point, because everything stopped, everything stopped. It's like, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. We got great five weeks, we got Olivier nominations. You know, we went in and out quickly with a bang. And enough of a bang, which, you know, provided us with the opportunity to return last autumn and, and winter to do it again. And we completed the 12 week run last year. So it was brilliant to come back. We were all very excited. Yeah, it was really special, I think, because a lot of us hadn't really forgotten our lines or forgotten our action. We were just ready for it. We we, we knew that it was something we, we hadn't finished yet and, and that it was time to put that right. So, yeah, it was a really magical run. And we we fortunately sold out most nights and played to roaring houses so it was it was really special did you grow up on blackadder do you know what no you didn't oh no. that's interesting I've, I've barely seen it i've barely seen it i grew up on i love lucy that was my hit it was i love lucy and we listened to a lot of dead ringers and oh, what was that the the armful of blood the pint that one can't remember but there was just a lot of like radio comedy we listened to which I think was was really 
not wise of my parents, you know, and sort of unintentionally wise because it, you know, listening to comedy really forces you to imagine the scenery and 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 how they're playing it, and and force you to sort of paint pictures with your mind, which really fed our imagination. So we, yeah, we listened to a lot of comedy, and I, you know, as I say, we would watch Harry Enfield and Chums, and all that stuff was really the, the, the kind of thing that we watched. But my parents watched Monty Python. I somehow I wasn't allowed to. I don't know why. But I didn't didn't watch it, and still I'm not enormously familiar with it. I don't know if people are screaming at their <laughs> their listening devices currently, but I didn't I didn't uh, engage with it like other things. Like as I say, I love Lucy and the, the character company that I saw and Abfab and all of that that really sort of lit to me. I suppose I was going to ask you this because you, obviously you have a scene with Gabriel. Glaister, who was in the original Blackadder, she's play, back playing Bob. But actually, for you, it was probably Harry Enfield in that in that sense that it was most exciting. Harry to be Enfield, on stage, yeah, it was yeah. so exciting, so exciting. I grew up watching him, and so it was very exciting to be part of. I mean, in the in the TV show um, for sure. But prior to that, I, I think I had a bit part in the Harry and Paul show. It was a Alan Sugar skit. I was just completely in awe of him. Like, I couldn't speak to him because he was my, you know, a real comedy idol. I interviewed Doom McKeegan the other day. In fact, this interview will probably come out before that interview does because she's written a memoir. And in it, she's talking about, or a part of it, she talks about, you know, acting and being a mum and sort of what Mm. a tough gig it is and how little there is, you know, help and support sometimes in amongst certain organisations. And I decided then that, and we actually talk about it. I, for ages, wouldn't ask women what it was like to work and have kids because nobody asks men that. So it seemed like mm-hmm. a point of principle. But then after reading Dune's book, it occurred to me that actually if we don't ask those questions, then we're not actually finding out what it is like because, you know, it yeah. can be a struggle. So I just wondered, you got two little ones at home. You, We're talking yeah. about you filming stuff, you, you know, being yeah. on stage. How's it going for you? Well, first of all, it's really interesting that you sort of boycotted that question because I tend to boycott the question, what's it like to play such a strong female character? Because I'm like, women are fucking strong. Like, fuck off. We're we're strong. I'm representing a woman who is in ownership of herself. She knows who she is, what she wants. That is not unusual. It's just unusual for it to be portrayed. Um, So I I used to boycott that question. (laughs) I'm continuing to tend to because I'm, I'm, I'm... quite fierce about that but um in terms of your question i think it is an important question to ask because then the answers bleed into the fabric of our industry hopefully and and cause gentle change because i really have found it oddly supportive since i had francis my daughter who's now five nearly six i had her as a newborn on game of thrones and I, I had written to the producers well in advance saying I will have given birth in September and I know you want me to film in October. So that will have to be factored in and I will be bringing her with me and I will be breastfeeding. And I, I wasn't ever a dick about it. And I said, I'll bring my husband and I will bring my own support, but I also need your support in that I need somewhere to feed her. And if I need to go, I will go and look after her. And I was, you know, I wasn't, as I say, I wasn't firm or like, I need this or I'm not coming. But I think there was a real power in like just asking for what you need without taking the piss. Mm. So as I said, I brought my husband and he was happy to be with her and I would feed her and she would have a little caravan that they provided and it was just zero problem. And often, you know, many people know filming is 
a lot of waiting around. So to feed a baby in a lighting turnaround or after a rehearsal is very quick and easy. And then you get back to work. And so then th thereafter, I took her on every job I did. And I just said, this is what I need. I'll be bringing support with me, but I'll need somewhere that I can look after her away from set. And yeah, it, it seemed very simple. But I think I am fortunate in the acting side of things, because I think if I was a DOP or a producer or someone who was sort of needed on the floor at all times, it might be trickier. Mm. But uh, yeah, I found it a very supportive and receptive industry, really. And doing plays is always wonderful in some ways because it means I'm at home all day and I just have to pop off sort of just before bedtime. But then just before bedtime is also <laughs> tricky because bedtime is often mummy time. But routines are found and uh, nannies have been helpful as well. And uh, yeah, if you sort of meet people halfway, it's, it's, it's been really enjoyable for me and really rich, I think, for the children to have always come with me. But currently I'm, I'm filming Tower 3 and it's the summer holidays, so everyone's coming with me. And they go off in the day with their dad and the nanny. And and obviously I couldn't hear myself saying the nanny. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, it's uh, it's something I'm prepared to spend my money on, probably to offset my guilt. <laughs> so You can't, you literally can't do it all, though. No, no, exactly, exactly. The interesting thing about, about we always have this conversation on Standard Issue, the interesting thing about can women have it all is the way the question's asked, it sort of sets you up for failure, doesn't it? The idea mm. that, you know, it is possible, but you're just not managing it, for example. And do do women actually want it all, necessarily? Oh, yeah, do we want it all? And also, like, what does it mean to have it all? Yeah. It's a, a false ambition, perhaps. So also, what I would say is I, prior to filming this, and I, I filmed D.I. Ray um, before the tower, I had five months off. So I'm at home doing everything all the time. It's a real sort of rich seam of like proper home family time. And then I try and make it work with us all going together and getting extra help. But I don't feel like I've got it all because I feel immense guilt whenever I'm away from them. Um, uh, and yes, I feel really enriched and fulfilled by my work. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really hard. Like today, I I think I said to to a friend of mine, I said going into because we're going to Liverpool tomorrow to film a bit more and I'm going to be gone I'm going to do two full days work this week which means I will have breakfast and dinner with them but be <laughs> gone in the day which is quite normal I said I think I said to my husband I said am I a disappearing mother he said no you're a working mother yeah it's like okay yeah thanks and it does help that he's trained as a psychotherapist recently so <laughs> I've married well <laughs> too right I have one last question for you and I know it isn't a question that my friend Paul will have asked you because I've got a story to tell you. The yeah. photograph of you holding the fox. What is that from? <laughs> no one's asked me that. That was um, a pilot I did, uh, a comedy pilot I did called Foley, which was all about the Foley artists, which is the, the creation of sound effects on soundtracks for films and TV. I'm like, you can, I think you crunch a leak for footsteps and strange things like that I don't right. know but anyway punch it, was a, it was a that stuff yeah a bunch of right. letters you've all that kind of stuff the, the foley artists are um to be much praised for their work so yes it was a, a pilot for that I think I have a door handle in my hand as well in that picture <laughs> yeah I think I do I know this photo quite well Gemma because a couple of years actually I'd say it's about five years ago in fact I believe it's when you were pregnant with 
with your daughter. Mm. We used to do live shows at Leicester Square Theatre and you were oh, going yes. to do a live show for us. Uh, and yes. then I think you may have had your baby and you, you had to pull out. But Leicester Square Theatre would create like the, the page where the, where the tickets were and advertise it. And they would send us a link to go on social media. And they sent us a link. And there were four like big photographs on their web page. One was of Sarah Millican and she was like laughing, looking hilarious. And one was of Marion Keyes, the author, looking, you know, just so impish and funny like she is. And one was photograph of Vicky McClure looking like the most beautiful gig. woman in yeah. the world like she is, yeah. right? And then the photo There's of me you. holding a fox. Was that one with the fox? <laughs> I remember that gig and I remember being so pained to have to pull out because several of those women, all of those women are idols of mine but yes I remember it but then there was me holding a fox I think it's because the fox that I was playing the wife of the one of the Foley artists in this um this pilot and I think stroking the fox was some sort of sound that they were creating <laughs> and the door handle had been part of it as well but I was you know sort of the woman sent sent home with all of the the, the, the bits because he was creating in his Foley studio so yes it was it was something along those lines but I do remember um, it being a very fun pilot, which sadly didn't get uh, picked up. <laughs> well, yes, we, that is the story behind me and the fox. But that picture still lives. And we did ring. We it did, does still live. Yes, we did email them and say, "Do you think there's maybe a better photograph you can put Gemma up on your website?" And I think, I think what happened was they just nicked all of your um, Twitter profile pictures and just not yes. checked what yours yeah, was. I think, yeah, I can't remember. I think it might it. be my Facebook one still. I don't know. Whenever I hear your name, I just want that picture to appear somewhere Me and the on fox. the screen. Yeah, you and the fox. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Gemma. Congratulations. I should have said, I watched series two. I thought it was great. Thank you for having me. I am joined by Maggie Smith. Not that one the American, to to use the words of of Meryl Streep, more on that later, poet and author of the new book, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. The new book is a a memoir about your life and career and your marriage. I wondered if you could start off by telling me and the listeners a little bit more about it. It's kind of hard for me to have an elevator pitch for this book because it's really so much about my adult life. And I was telling a friend recently, if you have an elevator pitch for your adult life, you're probably living too small. So it's a little bit tricky, but um, I'll say what inspired me to write this book was a somewhat naive but well-meaning attempt at understanding why my marriage ended. And I thought if I could pour enough thinking and feeling and, you know, dissection into the end of my marriage and the sort of period of my adult life, then I will understand it completely. I will have all the answers and I will be able to set it down and heal from it and move on. And so it was really a a kind of part ghost story, part mystery, part memoir as I try to figure out, okay, what happened in my life that led me to being the single parent of two kids in my mid-40s, what professionally and personally led to all of these things kind of unraveling and having to pick up the pieces and and start over. 
And of course, I realized in the writing of the book that there's no way to get at all the answers as a, as a human being, because some of the answers I don't have access to. But it was still a really useful and deeply contextualizing endeavor, I think, for anyone who's written memoir or who's written about their life. Sometimes you don't know how things are connected or how you even feel about things until you write them down. Just to put the book in a bit of context, so you have been a poet, a writer, an editor, you know, you've, you've had other books published in the past for quite a long period of time, right? So since basically since you left college, so you're just kind of like chugging away doing that. And then in 2016, you wrote a poem called Good Bones, which went viral and was, uh, as I sort of alluded to in my introduction, read at an event by Meryl Streep, which must be the weirdest feeling in the world. I mean, that must have been quite surreal, right? Uh, yes, a lot of surreal things happened as a result of Good Bones going viral, but Meryl Streep reading it at Lincoln Center is probably peak strangeness. I would lose my shit over that, but um, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, that this had like a knock-on effect on your marriage, which I'll go on to in a minute. But before that, you make a point in the book about how things kind of change after that you have this big sort of success and things change but life ultimately kind of does also continue in the same way and then you obviously have to manage those different threads so everything changes and nothing changes I wondered did you find that hard yeah it's sort of um, a strange thing where the pieces of your life don't quite align so when the poem went viral I had two small kids I was, um, you know, self-employed working out of this very office part-time while I managed caregiving to little kids in central Ohio. So I'm not living in New York City. I'm living in the suburbs in a small town in the middle of the Midwest. <laughs> and so suddenly, like, the BBC is emailing me. And it, it was just an incredibly surreal thing because my regular life, stayed the same size and shape, but my writing life literally overnight took on a different scale. And so there was this, I would say, growing pains, both professionally and and personally, when, when something, it's sort of like lightning struck in a way. What then happens is basically this has a knock-on effect on your marriage. Because you were a pretty progressive couple, as you know in the book, but basically, your husband did not enjoy the success you were having because it took you away from the home to do other things. I wondered, why do you think, and there's probably a very simple answer to this, but I'm interested in your perspective. Why do you think sometimes women's success can be threatening to their partners? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, patriarchy? <laughs> there's the there's the simple answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's it's tricky. I think I we had both built our relationship in such a way. And I, you know, I, I say this in the book, but like marriages, relationships are co-created. So I built this thing, too. So whatever its mm. flaws were, <laughs> um, I contributed to building it that way. And we basically built a relationship in which the kids were my primary responsibility and because I worked from home in, and I built my life that way so that I could be more available to the kids, 
It meant that suddenly being called away to attend a literary festival or give a reading or go to a university as a visiting author um, put pressure on the situation because I had been so available and had made myself so available that my not being here was a real problem. I mean, we didn't have a nanny. There wasn't help. And so if one person was gone, the other person had to pick up the slack. This is a generalization, but also like the statistics do suggest that this is generally the case, that the person usually picking up the slack in a, you know, heterosexual relationship is the woman. And, and there's a point that you make as well in the book, which I think is really interesting. When one partner out earns the other, is there an unwritten rule that the one who earns less will take on more household labour? So conversations that I have with some of my female friends where the woman actually is the breadwinner as well, the woman is often doing all of the other stuff too. Like it is so gendered, I think. What, I wonder what you thought about that. It's true. It's And that was not my experience. My experience was that my partner out-earned me. And mm -hmm. so my perspective was, well, maybe part of it, maybe part of this issue, or maybe maybe a big part of this issue is that I earn less money and therefore I'm more useful in my home as a caregiver than I am as an earner. And yet having published this book in the States already and having talked to so many people about this, I'm hearing from people every day who are like, well, I out-earn my husband and I'm still doing all the camp drop-offs. I out-earn my husband and my kids still come to me for every single permission slip, every, I, I mean, really every volunteer opportunity in their classroom, everything. So again, it does, I think, come down to, I mean, I, I jokingly said patriarchy, but I think, I think it's true. I think there's so much conditioning about around motherhood in yeah. general, that dads are congratulated if they do school drop offs or volunteer for the class, you know, Valentine's Day party. And if moms do it, it's just like, well, of course you're doing it. That's just what you do. But always seems to be so extraordinarily low. It's it's on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even limbo under it. It's, no, we it's... just we just step over it. It's fine. <laughs> do you think that there is an expectation then that women will know their place or stay in their lane? Oh, I do. I do. I go to conferences or literary festivals and almost always someone will say, well, who, who has the children? I don't believe for a second that their father, when traveling for business, is asked, but who has your children? Because there's an assumption that their mother has them. And so, yeah, I think there is an expectation that if something has to give, it's me, right? It's if something has to give, it's my thing to to sacrifice. And I think that generally speaking, women are conditioned to be self-sacrificing and to be caregiving and to put others first and to get a lot of our sense of self and well-being from what we can be and do for other people as opposed to ourselves. And the flip side of that, Ben, is that when we do want to lean in to our careers, we can be made out to be selfish. 
or uh, I love ambitious as a dig instead of mm. a compliment. Yeah. You know, and I just think the I don't know why the rules can't be the same. I don't know why we haven't evolved in the 21st century to not be playing out those patterns of our parents and grandparents and great grandparents. And I think the needle is moving, but it hasn't moved as far as as I think we we need to move it. There's a point in the book where you sort of say that you realize that you lived a sort of version of single motherhood before you were a single parent. And I think from conversations that I have with my girlfriends, I think that is probably almost universally true of mothers. I wondered what you thought about that. I don't know that I realized how universally true it was before publishing this book and hearing from other people who were like, yes, that's my experience also. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about, um, as scary as it is, about writing something so intensely personal and Mm. sharing it with other people is realizing how not alone you are in your experience. I think so many of us live so siloed and frankly, often suffer by ourselves because we think, surely I must be the only person who feels this way and I don't want to complain. And I, you know, I want to come becoming at my life from a place of gratitude. So who am I, except for maybe to a few close girlfriends to say, this is my experience. And yet again, I'm hearing from people all the time. This is exactly what it feels like. It can be incredibly lonely to be the primary caregiver, even in a two-parent household, if you feel like you're kind of doing it by yourself. And so the the deep irony for me now is that I'm solo parenting two kids. And so the whole slate is mine. The, all the work falls to me. And yet it doesn't feel lonely in the same way because they're, I'm not looking at somebody on the other side of the table or on the other side of the couch thinking, why aren't you with me in this? Mm. There's not that expectation. And so it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel asymmetrical anymore. In the midst of the breakdown of your marriage and and all of this stuff going on, you kind of had a bit of an epiphany, didn't you? Like, why is it never about my happiness? Why, you know, why is all of this happening to facilitate my husband's happiness? Why isn't it about me? How do you think you got to that point of clarity? A lot of pain, frankly. I mean, sometimes uh, pain can be a real teacher. (laughs) And I think like sitting with something and doing my best to contort myself and tie myself into knots in order to make other people happy made me realize, I think, over a period of time, it's not working for me, but also it it actually wasn't working in my marriage. Like the sacrifices I was making in my marriage weren't improving the relationship. And so if you're going to contort yourself in order to make your partner happy and your partner isn't happy, it would stand to reason that maybe you could pull back for a moment and say, okay, this probably isn't going to work either way. If this is inevitably going to end, then how can I take care of myself? Which is probably decision-making I should have done earlier, but I got to it when I got to it. But you're right. I mean, like, pain does teach you a lesson doesn't it it's just that you know it's like with kids like okay well you know you're gonna I don't know pull that cat's tail 
you know, the cat is going to scratch you and you're going to learn. You don't want that to happen to you again. I suppose that works in a variety of different ways, doesn't it? You you learn through pain, as you say. Yes. And even with the body. I mean, if you mm. think I've never run, but I'm going to go try to run a marathon without training and working my way up to it. Your body will tell you that you're you're testing yourself in a way that's not healthy. If your muscles hurt, that's a sign that you're pushing yourself. That happens to us emotionally and sort of psychically as well. And too often, I think we ignore our own intuition and we ignore that voice inside that says, this is not working. This is not working. You know, it's easy to listen to our inner voice when it's telling us what we want to hear. It's trickier to listen and honor that inner voice when it's telling us something hard, like maybe your marriage isn't going to work or maybe this career isn't good for you or maybe you need to move or whatever that um, that thing that the inner voice is telling you. It's so much easier to hear it when it's telling you something easy. So the book is a memoir. It's deeply personal. You know, there's, it's about the breakdown of your marriage. It's, you know, it's about your kids. It's about your mental health. It's about all sorts of things. You are telling other people's stories as well. Obviously, there's your ex-husbands, there's your children, there's other people around you. But, you know, it's also, it's your narrative, which you absolutely have a right to and take ownership of. But I wondered, do you think, you know, that there's also kind of a responsibility on you when you're telling other people's stories? Like, what what's the balance there? Oh, it's huge. I mean, my, my rule for myself was not to get into anyone else's interior life. <laughs> And so I don't pretend to know what anyone else was thinking or feeling. My rule for myself was to stay grounded in my own experience. So conversations I had, things that happened to me, but no projecting like, I think probably this person was feeling this way or thinking this way, <laughs> or I wasn't present for this, but this is something that happened outside of me. So really keeping it grounded in my own lived experience. And even then, I still held a lot back because I thought, you know, are there pieces of the story I didn't share? Lots of them. And mostly because I didn't need to share them. So if there were things I thought like, oh, that's that's an interesting bit, but it's going to give me anxiety telling that story. And it's probably going to cause someone else stress sharing that story. And I don't actually think it's essential to telling mine. Then I can cut it. So I was I was pretty ruthless as a curator in deciding what to share and what not to share. And I think protective in a way, too. I mean, you've sort of alluded to it already, but like, what kind of reaction are you getting? Because I imagine a lot of women, I know I, I'm reading it and I'm like, yes, like a lot of it really resonates with me. You must be getting quite a big reaction to it, right? Because it's already been published in the States, as you said. It's been um, incredibly surprising. I've gotten more emails, letters, cards, DMs, tweets, um, than for this book, than for anything I've ever written, which, uh, including Keep Moving, including Good Bones, it's been incredible. And a lot of the mail that I'm getting and emails, it will, the first sentence is, I've never written an author before. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Yeah. But I sat down and read this book in one gulp and can't believe how close to my experience it is. Or we have really different experiences, but you have absolutely captured 
what it feels like to do X, Y, and Z. And so it's, again, if I had any trepidation, you know, if I was nervous about publishing this book, which I was, I mean, it's a really vulnerable thing to publish a memoir. It's kind of a crash course in courage and vulnerability, frankly. It has, I feel like the amount of feedback I'm getting from women, but also from men. I mean, the well, some that of them going to be my I'm next question. From sure. men. Yeah, I'm hearing from men, and some of some of what I'm hearing from men is, you know, my marriage ended, and I had no idea what was wrong, and now I'm reading your book, and I realize what I wasn't doing, mm. and it 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 gives me a greater perspective on the end of my own marriage. Sometimes I've heard from men who say, this is actually inspiring me to sit down with my partner and have a real a real dialogue about her dreams and goals, our responsibilities, the way that we're splitting labor in our home and how I can show up in a bigger way because I don't want to end up divorced later. Like I would like to salvage this relationship and I can see in your book some of the behaviors in my own house um, that I want to get ahead of. And so it's it has been really eye-opening for me. I think I said when I when I wrote this book, I would just like like the mark of success for this book will just be if one person says, I feel seen. And I've I've heard that from more people than I can count. And so I feel I feel really glad about that. So Maggie, the book is is beautifully written. It's as we were talking about sort of off air, as it were, earlier. It, you are a poet and it does have quite a sort of poetic quality to it in the way that it's written, the way that it's structured, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder what's next for you. Are you going to be returning to poetry? Well, um, my next book that's coming out in February is actually an illustrated picture book for children. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not memoir and it's not poetry. Uh, and I think the book after that is a collection of essays. But there needs to be no return to poetry because poetry never left me. Poetry is the thing that stays with me always. Um, and poems just show up whenever they wish. I wish they showed up more often than they do. But whenever they, they kind of knock on the door, I'm always like running <laughs> to answer it. So poems kind of come, you know, in ones and twos for me relatively slowly. And then after a few years, I realize I have enough for another book. So I'm I'm hoping in the next year or so I will have enough to make another collection. Fantastic. Okay. So Maggie, where can we follow you to keep up to date with what you're up to? I live fairly online. <laughs> um, so I'm Maggie Smith Poet on all of the social media platforms. Um, and that helps me not get too confused with the Dane, though. I do get a fair amount of Harry Potter and Downton Abbey fan mail. And no, I'm not signing photographs of Dane Maggie Smith and, and sending them out into the world. So I'm Maggie Smith Poet um, and MaggieSmithPoet.com on the internet. I don't know. Maybe you should consider that as a little side hustle. But um... <laughs> I know. I keep thinking, what is it about me? Like, if you're looking at my author photo, I am clearly not Dane Maggie no. Smith. I can confirm, listener, you're about 40 years younger for a start. Uh, I'm about 40 years younger, so I, I maybe need to change my skincare routine. It's very obvious that you're 40 years younger, just to be clear <laughs> on that. 
Maggie, it's been an absolute delight chatting to you. Thank you so much. No, it's been a joy. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where the patriarchy just will not stop scoring own goals as we discuss all things women's sport. Now look, sorry to do this after complaining last week that people would not stop talking about it, but Spanish Football Federation boss Luis Rubiales is the gift that just will not stop giving. And by gift, I mean massive bellend. In the latest from Rubiales, who was also seen, this is something that's escaped my attention until now, was also seen grabbing his crotch in celebration during the match, like next to the Queen of Spain and her daughter. Anyway, sadly, he has opened his mouth again. This time it's to say, and I quote, I've made some obvious mistakes which I regret sincerely. I've asked for forgiveness because it was fair and now I do it again with humility. I do it with the purpose of improving. Sports leaders should be required to exhibit exemplary behaviour. Mine was not. So what's your problem offered, apart from the fact that you should have just said this two weeks ago? Well, what he's not apologising for, he says, repeating twice in his statement, is for a non-consensual act because it was consented, he says. He's provided evidence, not opinion, he says. Clear facts. Wowzers. I have nothing further to add. I'll counter this now with a little bit of good news, which is that it was announced last week that the England women's cricket team's match fees will be increased to equal the men's with immediate effect. The recommendation was made by a recent Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket report, which found widespread discrimination in the sport, with women previously paid between 15 to 25% of their male counterparts' match fees. The average salary of women cricketers in England is around 20% of their male equivalents. It sounds bad, but it is worth noting that England women's footballers only achieved match fee parity with the men's teams as of 2020. So these are like quite recent events. I have always said that I think arguments around salaries and pay for domestic leagues should be different to those at international level. We need to build sustainable growth in women's sport if it's going to succeed. And I'm not sure that spaffing all of that investment on salaries is the way to do it. However, if you're called up by your country to represent them, I really think that the financial reward should be the same. So this is a step in the right direction and, you know, great news. Okay, let's move on to the US Open. This comes as there was more news this week about a potential ATP and WTA merger. That is that the men's and women's separate governing bodies could join together as one. According to reports this week, there's set to be a meeting to discuss this later on in the month. As I've said before, I'm not sure this is the way forward. The WTA represents the interests of women on the tour and... Are they likely to get better representation if it all goes under the same roof? Are they likely to get better schedules, better courts, better money? I remain pretty sceptical on that, to be honest. There is some suggestion in these reports that this renewed interest is linked to increasing investment in tennis by the Saudi Arabian government, as has been the case with golf, football, etc, etc. The suggestion is that the two could join forces to sort of ward off any kind of Saudi circuit, although a decision is yet to be taken regarding the host of the forthcoming WTA finals at the end of the year, which could be in Czech Republic or Saudi Arabia. I mean, sure, I can see the obvious conundrum here. Give it to a great tennis nation or, uh, yeah, Saudi Arabia, a country where women have only been allowed in sports stadiums since 2017. Sure. Tough one. 
Anyway, the US Open. We are down to the quarterfinals and as ever, there have been some surprising results. World number one Iga Swiatek was knocked out in the round of 16. Jessica Pagula and Ons Jabeur were also eliminated. Second seed Arena Sabalenka is still in contention, but otherwise, the remaining names are not necessarily who you would expect to see. I'm recording this on Tuesday and Coco Goff is due to take on Yelena Ostapenko at 5pm today. So if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you might have listened to this before the result was out, but otherwise you will know the result. I would love to see Coco Goff succeed in New York. She's a sixth seed and one of two Americans left in the tournament along with Madison Keys. You'll remember that she burst onto the scene a few years ago when she ended up playing her idol Serena Williams at Wimbledon. She's still only 19 and this is now her second time in the quarterfinals at the US Open. And of course, she made it to last year's French Open final, eventually losing out to Sviantec. Her best results at Wimbledon and the Australian Open are fourth round. In terms of the names left in the draw, I think a win on home turf is not out of the question, but we will find out on Saturday. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, have you got any bigger custard creams? This week, we watched 2003's Old Lady DeForce, Calendar Girls. The film was directed by Nigel Cole, whose credits include Saving Grace, Made in Dagenham and The Wedding Video. So far, so Woodbridge. That won't actually mean anything to you unless you have spent time in the Suffolk town. My dad used to run the cinema there, which catered almost exclusively to Judy Dench fans. And that's really all you need to know. <laughs> Who isn't a Judy Dench fan, though? That's everyone. Uh, yeah, but you know when you're like only a Judy Dench fan. That's yeah. what I mean. Okay. Not okay, just Ju- like, but the only watch films with Judy Dench in. Yeah. And Calendar Girls. Calendar Girls, as I recall, did an absolutely roaring trade at that cinema, and many more besides. Full of oldies and youngies, fresh off the back of Spice Mania, ready to empower middle-aged women and fingers crossed get a fleeting glimpse of Helen Mirren's tits. Written by Tim Firth, who also went on to adapt the film into an award-winning musical with the help of Gary Barlow. (laughs) The film has been compared to The Full Monty, presumably because it's about, quote-unquote, normal people taking their clothes off, because women have bodies too, you know. (laughs) Who knew? It is based on the real-life story of Angela Baker from Linton, Yorkshire, who decided to raise money for the charity Leukaemia and Lymphoma Research, which is now called Blood Cancer UK, if you're inspired and want to give them a couple of quid after hearing this, after her husband John died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma aged 54 in 1998. In the film, Angela is Annie Clark, played by Julie Walters, who, along with her busy mate Chris, played by Mirren, forms a crack commando unit of Women's Institute members, played variously by Linda Bassett, Annette Crosby, Celia Imery and Penelope Wilton, to name a handful. A bum crack commando unit, eh? Quite. Who agree to get naked for a charity calendar in her husband's honour? The aim of the game is to raise enough money to buy a new sofa for the relative's room at the hospital where John was treated to provide comfort for those enduring their most difficult days. And so... Sexy Spice, Posh Spice, Grieving Spice, School Mistress Spice, Downtrodden Spice, Working Class Spice, and a few more kind of like mixed herbs. They're sort of interesting by default, but crucially not famous enough to bother developing their characters. <laughs> they are set to defy Brown Owl, or whatever the WI equivalent is, played by Geraldine James. She's not so keen on the idea of the calendar, not wanting the WI's good name to be brought into disrepute. 
and much more interested in finding out about boring shit like broccoli. But Helen Mirren is not to be fucked with, right? And neither is Chris, who rather domineeringly leads the women into battle with strategically placed WI-related items masking their modesty as Philip Glenister looks on with a camera. But how will their husbands feel about this? Does anyone actually want to see middle-aged women's not-tits? Is Chris taking it all a bit too far and will the WI actually let them do it? It takes at least 20 minutes too long to answer all these questions. (laughs) And for the women to end up incongruously in Hollywood. Sorry, spoiler alert. In terms of reception, proving that women do watch films, it made $93.4 million in the box office from a budget of $10 million and was nominated for a handful of awards, mostly for Mirren and Walters' turns, but it only won one as Cole took away Best Comedy Film at the British Comedy Awards what that year. fuck? I don't know who it was up against. I didn't look, but uh, yeah. The news, presumably. <laughs> the news. <laughs> US critics mostly said, oh, it's English, isn't it? It has a 74% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes and its success also spawned both a stage show and aforementioned musical. I don't know if this is fair to say because she has worked pretty prodigiously since the 60s, but looking at her filmography, maybe you could argue that it made Mirren a bit more Hollywood? I don't know, we could probably argue the toss about that. It's also worth mentioning that as of 2019... When real-life Angela was awarded an MBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours list, the women, the actual women, that is, had made over £6 million for charity. At the end of the film, it says they'd raised 578000 so clearly the telling of this story to a larger audience has helped somewhat in that. So, lads, this film came out when I was at uni and I really did only go to the cinema about six times in those three years. So I missed this at the time. I do remember my dad wanging on about it. And from what I've gleaned over the years, he's not wildly into the empowerment of middle-aged women. So uh, what got him excitable? I don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. I don't think any of us had seen this before, had we? I had seen some of it before. Okay. Not all of it. I'd seen some of it. Probably on the telly at my mum's house or something. I had definitely seen some of it before. And that was probably oh, 15 years ago, something like that. But no, I hadn't watched it all the way through. I haven't seen it before, but was well aware of it, which is why I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I having worked at a local newspaper for years and years and years. The story behind it, I am way more familiar with than the film because... It inspired absolutely everybody in the whole world to make their own new calendar. And we actually had a ban in conference of bringing nude calendar stories into conference because we were like, no, fuck off. We don't care. Like now a nude calendar makes around the same amount of money as the original WI calendars were making because every Tom, Dick and Harry's like, hey, why don't we take our clothes off for our calendar as well? So, yeah, I should sort of, you know. In the interest of big fair say, I'm very cynical about this whole thing because of that, because I've just seen way too many And yeah, if you do well. go to the merch section of standardissuepodcast.com, <laughs> there I am, tits out. Now, I, I guess what it was trying to do, not very subtly, was make a point about women still being desirable and having value in their older years, which I think it does. But it does require Helen Mirren to get her tits out to make that point. And related to that point, If you have seen the new Barbie film, have either of you seen it? Not yet. Mirren herself is the narrator of that film. And there's a bit where she says, sort of knowingly as the narrator, that perhaps casting Margot Robbie in a role that requires the central character to feel quote-unquote ugly 
is not the best way to demonstrate that point. I don't know. Anyway, those are just some uh, some thoughts I had about Calendar Girls. What do you think? Do you think it achieves its primary objective of being empowering? No. No, because it only empowers these women. All the other women are fuddy-duddy old biddies. The opposition to this largely comes from other women. These women are cool girls because they're doing this thing about taking their clothes off. All these other women... In fact, the whole WI is this boring fucking institution that needs shaking up. And I find that to be a really horrible message for a film. For a film that is trying to empower women, or at least pretending it empowers women, it is incredibly male gaze. How do we empower women? They take their clothes off. Like that as a message to women is, you know, as old as, well, clothes. And so... That annoyed me, although obviously with the caveat it is based on a true story. This actually happened. But for a film that claims to empower women, it doesn't half like putting them in their place. Like yeah. any any chance it gets, it pits women against women. What do the husbands yeah. think about this? You know, and, and like Hannah said, if you're not in the calendar, then you're not like a cool, fun woman anymore. So what about those women? Doesn't give a shit. I found it incredibly male gaze. And it's actually in defence of the WI, because interestingly, I watched this film 15 years ago and I'm now starting to approach the age that some of the women are in this. So you think it would probably speak to me more or it should. But around the time, I think this calendar was 1999 that it came out. In 1999, Tony Blair spoke to the WI at their annual conference, which is uh, literally the exact conference that's being replicated here in it. And the WI has a rule that you're not allowed to talk about big P politics, you're only allowed to talk about small P politics. And Tony Blair addressed the conference and talked big P politics and they heckled the shit out of him. It was a really famous incident. They slow clapped him, they heckled him and he had a really hard time. He said it was the hardest speech he ever gave. And you think, is that the same women that are all sitting around going, like, Helen Mirren just keeps standing there going, basically everything she says is the WI is shit. I'm only here because I want something to do. The WI shit, I ate jam, I ate Jerusalem, all of that stuff. And I just think it's, what the fuck? If this is an institution that, that millions of women around this country have been part of over the years or possibly are part of now, I don't know, who actually had a voice that they shouted down the Prime Minister and they're all shown as being miserable, funny, dirty bitches. I hated it. What <laughs> I would also say about that is that I'm talking about sort of quite hipster areas of East London that I lived in at the time, but certainly for like at least the last 15 years there have been branches of the WI in, for example, hipster parts of East London that are literally aimed at like younger people and blah, blah, blah. So it is is a very outdated perception of the WI. Yeah. And in fact, the only reason people have stopped taking the piss out of the WI now is because Mumsnet has replaced the words WI as the punchline to the joke that people make about women when they group together. People are like, oh, it's like mum's net in here. Yeah. Whereas 20 years ago, they would have gone, oh, it's like so the WI in here. In here. Yeah. When we were in magazine, I was the broccoli woman. I went and did a speech about standard issue to the WI and they were really engaged and really engaging in feminism and in what's going on for women around the world rather than, and I've got to say, it was one of the only bits of this film that actually made me laugh than just the clanking out of Jerusalem on an old piano. But yeah, it was much more modern than it is represented here. And it it basically describes, they use the word twee quite a lot in this. It basically describes the WI as being twee. And I actually think this film is really fucking twee. Well, it is, yeah. I I think it is what it's slagging off Mm. the WI for being. 
No, it's massively true, yeah. Some of the performances are great, I will say. I fucking loved Annette Crosby, but you covered this at the beginning. Unless it's Julie Walters or Helen Mirren, we're not giving any information about these women. They are literally just other women getting their knockers out or whatever. There's a little bit more information about Penelope Wilton's character. Yeah. Very little. And yet she's the hard done by woman. The way they react to huge emotional events in their lives, it's like they don't have any emotions at all. It's absolutely oh straight-faced. It's so God. weird. I'm actually not a big fan of Helen Mirren, but we've discussed on this podcast, you and I, recently about how brilliant Judy Waters is and how much no, we no. love Judy Waters. I've talked on this podcast about how much I fucking love Linda Bassett. I think she's one of the best actresses she's got. And recently we had an opportunity, it didn't come off, to interview Penelope Wilton and we were all well fucking excited. And Celia Imrie is oh, like so... Her. It impacted on my brain from yeah. my childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so Acorn fond antiques. of her. They're all such talented comic actresses. How is this not funny? Nothing about this is funny. And the most frustrating thing about it is that this, there's lots of things that we don't do well in this country. What we do unbelievably well are films about a group of outsiders who gang together to make a change in their life or to overcome a problem. And this is what we do, like Full Monty, Made in Dagenham, Pride, Brassed Off, all of those films. We are so good at those films. And this copies the formula, like the bit where they're interviewing the photographers is basically exactly the same formula as you get that in the Full Monty where they're all interviewing the other dancers. But there's no fucking jokes in it. It's just lame. It's shit. Yeah, it's got got the formula, (laughs) but it's not got the heart or the jokes. It's not got the heart or the humour. Go back to your point about emotion. I'm particularly annoyed because this is about someone who's been recently widowed and about cancer. And it says nothing about either of them. And I'm allowed to deem myself an expert at the moment because 75% of my life this year has been about widows and people with cancer. And it says nothing about either of them. There's no emotion that you're absolutely right. There's no feeling in it. Cancer's treated like it's a bit of a joke. And then Helen Mirren stands up and gives a speech as if Julie Waters is the only person whose husband has died of cancer. There's probably other women in that room whose husbands have died of cancer. And it's it's just, yes, nothing. It says nothing about widowhood and it says nothing about cancer. I thought some of the only bits that it did that I thought were all right, some of the bits with Julie Waters and her husband, I thought they were quite touching. I think John Alderton's very good, actually, as John, her husband. And, yeah, the the moment in the car when he's sort of reading out yeah. the top of what his speech would have been, it's, like, it's very touching. But the rest of it, is she in denial? This is something she's doing to distract herself from the grief. Potentially, do they even think about talking about that? Absolutely not. That horrible ripping into that Helen Mirren's character does to Julie Walters' character at the end yeah. when she has coerced her into all sorts of stuff that she doesn't want to do because her head's got massive. And yet her husband's advice is, oh, just don't ever talk about it. It'll be fine, love. And the friendship continues. Oh, no, absolutely not. There's no understanding of emotions, let alone female friendships within this film, which is about female friendship. Yeah, there's a bit where they're all walking along. They've been off to do Tai Chi or something. As Celia Rimmery says, oh, how's she getting on? How's Anne getting on? And they all live in the same village. Do you know what? You go and knock on the fucking door and you ask just know you. In I a think... village that size, you'd know how yeah, she was getting and on. and it just, just doesn't seem to understand how women are with each other. You just go round. They're like the calendar mean girls, aren't they? If you're not in their gang, yeah. then they don't give a monkey. So actually, the only other woman who seems to show, or we get to see showing any sort of consideration for Annie 
is Marnie, brown owl, who goes around with some flowers. And yeah. while she's trying to talk her out of doing the calendar, she, and she yeah. makes the mistake of going, John wouldn't want this. You know, mistake. She is still the only one that we see actually calling around to her house and seeing if she's all right. I think she does only do that to try and shit on her calendar, though. I don't think she does it out of well, genuine also, concern. Well, to, also, to be fair, and I've said that this a lot this year, they do say to you when you've been recently widowed, don't do anything wild, yeah. don't move out, don't do anything crazy in the first year because you're not yourself. So actually, Helen Mirren persuading her to do stuff that she doesn't really want to do is even worse. And yet, £6 million has been raised, so I don't want to poo-poo. Or I don't want to use the phrase poo-poo ever again. I can't believe neither of you told me off for that. It's ridiculous. But I don't want to shit on what the the actual women who inspired this story, who did this, Mm. have achieved. Because that's incredible. But I feel like the film almost realises it's got it wrong when it sends them to Hollywood and shows the Hollywoodification of the story as if this is where it all goes wrong. It's like, hey, Mm. dudes, have have you looked at what you've made? Because you've pretty much done what you're mocking. Yeah, agreed. And I poo-poo that. Absolutely poo-poo it. (laughs) Just get it in a few more times. No one's poo-pooing the women that did it because, yeah, like you say, six million quid is an awful lot of money to raise for charity. So, you know, well done there. And awareness, the awareness for that charity as well. But if we're saying, if this film is saying women are relevant, middle-age women have something to offer the world, Ultimately, the message is you take your clothes yeah. off. That's how you're still, yeah. you, by pretending you're still young. Not by the wisdom you've achieved over the years, by pretending that you're still young. Like I said at the top, I think Helen Mirren is obviously a ridiculously beautiful, attractive woman. It's And she's she's the one that does actually get a bit naked. And so from that point, I'm like, okay, so you've got sexy spice. Come on. Like from that moment, I'm like, you've lost me. To add to that, Jen, they also give Helen Mirren's character the line, none of us like our bodies, when Helen Mirren is the one who has quite famously got naked in stuff before and is quite famously crumpet for a lot of heterosexual men. And I'm sure some some women who like women as well, because she's beautiful. So, bullshit. I call bullshit. I'm poo-pooing that as well. I'm poo-pooing it. (laughs) (laughs) I will will say, Penelope Wilton is unexpectedly smoking in this. Yeah, (laughs) Penelope Wilton. Yeah, Even I was she's like, got Christ. A mullet. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Wilson. For all of the criticisms that that we've made here, all of which I consider to be very valid, I don't know how they could have done it much better because I think the fundamental message of it is flawed, and perhaps that means that it's dated in a way that's actually kind of positive because views have changed in the yeah. twenty years. Because undoubtedly, that's that calendar that Corister, that is true. Mm. So undoubtedly it did hit a nerve with a lot of people at the time. None of us can answer this question because none of us were middle-aged women in 2003 and indeed none of us watched it at the time. And I don't really remember loads about the reaction to it either. But like, did women feel empowered by this? Because I think the message has aged badly. And as you say, Hannah, probably didn't seem that bad 20 years ago. Probably did seem more empowering then than it does now. I don't know. I had a little look at some of the interviews given at the time. And given that a lot of the actresses that were being interviewed about this obviously talked about the fact that they had to be naked in front of a a camera. I I think maybe there was a double whammy of that because it's not just these women Mm. took their clothes off. It's that Celia Rimri and, you know, 
Annette Crosby took their clothes off as well in a room full of people. So maybe there was the the, the double empowerment because they a lot of the interviews are them talking, the women talking about what it was like to film those scenes. So perhaps everyone was so focused on those scenes they didn't notice that all the other scenes they were in were shit. <laughs> and I can't believe I'm saying that because I fucking adore Linda Bassett. I think she's amazing. This is absolutely the worst thing she's ever been. And Julie Walters. They just don't get anything to do, which no. seems so wasteful. And I feel like like the way that they could have done it better, or maybe if it was being remade now, is focus on the women's stories and have the calendar as the end of the film. Instead of have the calendar and the, and the shooting of the calendar as kind of, it's in the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, isn't it? And then it's all about the kind of fallout and what do the husbands think? And oh, yeah. now we're famous and all of that. Then they could maybe explore like the, the women's stories. But I don't know. I don't think I'd watch that either, to be honest. No, I'm not sure I or would. Or maybe have not a man write it. I know, just an oh, idea. Come on, Hannah. Just an idea. That is the crucial point that I think if this film Poo-poo. was made now, it absolutely would be written by a woman. I think. It's kind of written by a woman, though. Was it? Yep. Juliet Tawidi. Well, I think if it were made now, it would be a woman that wrote it fully. I like to think. I hope so, anyway. I think it would probably hope. be... Hope. It's good to cling on to that. Well, I, th- I think it would probably be, again, I hope, a woman that directed it. But, you know, few and far between, isn't it? Dream on, dream <laughs> I think there'd at least be a conversation now, like... Do we want a man to direct this film? Do you know what I mean? No, we're just just playing. Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, on that note, guys, rated or dated? Um, Dated. Yeah, I mean, it's dated and also dog shit. (laughs) Do you know what? There are bits of it that I didn't find completely awful. I thought Julie Walters and Helen Mirren, I didn't really like Helen Mirren's character. I thought she was a bit of a bellend in a variety of ways, but I quite enjoyed their performances nonetheless. But yeah, it's enormously dated, I agree. Yorkshire looks bloody lovely. Say that for As it. always, yeah. As ever. Well done, Yorkshire. Who's next? Have we got a third Yorkshire film coming up? We do not. We're not in Yorkshire. In fact, we're heading over to Japan, but staying in 2003 with Lost in Translation. Oh, oh, oh. interesting. Mm. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to watch a 19-year-old girl being a romance with a 50-year-old man? Who doesn't? Anyway, so we've just done my rated or data for next week. Uh, Hello, what's next? <laughs> Standard issue for all women.